In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, Amen. My Lord and my God, I firmly believe that you are here, that you see me, that you hear me. I adore you with profound reverence. I ask your pardon for my sins and the grace to make this time of prayer fruitful. My Immaculate Mother, Saint Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me. We saw how his throne was the throne of the cross. He hung on the cross as the true king, even though nobody would have thought of him as a king at that moment. At that moment, he looked more like a failed criminal, and he looked like somebody who was to be despised, a criminal who deserved death. But his kingship showed by the fact that he rose again, that he had the power to rise again and come back to life. A king always has power. Whatever he says goes. And the Lord showed his power by being able to, on his own power, on his own ability, on his own desire, rise again. No president, no dictator, no emperor, no politician, no sage, no philosopher has ever had that kind of power or influence or sway. Everybody is subject ultimately to death. Every Wikipedia entry about a biography of somebody always has, he was born here, he was dead there. That's it. That's how you can tell how old the guy was and how long his life was, even though they may be very famous people. Lord, you overcame death not because you never died or because you only appeared to die or because somebody substituted for you on the cross. That's what some Muslims say. They say somehow Judas came there and ended up hanging on the cross and dying. And Jesus escaped and ran away and, and uh, supposedly pretended that he had risen. Of course, how that could possibly even happen, they don't give you the details, but, uh, but they can't imagine that somebody should have that power to rise. But Lord, you died and you rose, you descended the dead there with your power as king over the living and the dead. And we might ask, well, why did the disciples of Emmaus not recognize the Lord Jesus as he walked next to them? Or even when he appeared to Magdalene, she didn't recognize him right away. She thought he was the gardener. Maybe the same thing even happened to Mary's mother. Maybe she didn't recognize him right away. I mean, that's not in the gospel as such, but... Or even to Longinus, maybe he appeared to Longinus. We don't know exactly what that was, but it was clear like his power over death had a transforming impact on him, so much so that it kind of required a certain faith to recognize him. He appears to the apostles after his resurrection as king. That's how he appears. He says, all authority in heaven and earth have been given to me. You know, it's kings who have authority. And I have authority over heaven and earth. So that power 
is what we want to continue examining in our prayer and how it can be expressed in our life, how it can be lived, how it can be acknowledged in some way. And if we said that Don Alvaro's Episcopal motto was Regnare Christum Volumus. Well, we know he already reigns, he's already king, so you know, what does that mean that he, we want him to reign? We know that that kingship, that reigning, has not been fully realized just yet. And we want to see it fully realized already on this earth so, it, so that eventually he will be completely realized in the cosmos, in, that he will be king of all creation. And so for us, that points to our responsibility and our duty to do apostolate so that he reign in more hearts. This is the point that our father wrote when he was in Burgos and was added to the way. Number 301, he said, he was referring to this, what he described as a, a group of men or a handful of women that were surrounded by a crisis and yet had a readiness to fight, a real desire a deep desire to fight. And he uses, I suppose, some kind of military imagery. He says, a secret, an open secret. These world crises are crises of saints. God wants a handful of men of his own, of his own, in every human activity. And then, Pax Christi in Regno Christi, the peace of Christ in the kingdom of Christ. This image of a, a small handful of men and women because they are well trained, they have a good understanding of the Master, and they have a mission. God wants that handful of men of His own, like those operatives, those special ops guys that go in for a mission, and they're highly, highly trained. Not just that they're strong, but they, they've been prepared for everything. And what's primary for them, what's most fundamental for them, is actually not their lives. It's not to get out of this safe and sound. It's the mission. They have that focus. And they're able to train themselves to be a kind of uh, oblivious to any dangers, to be able to enter into a, a place where there might be a dirty bomb, and they go in there and they defuse it, because they've been trained for that. And our father spoke about this small handful of men or of women because we are surrounded by so many that are trained very superficially or just know the Lord very vaguely or barely. You know, I remember seeing a movie, a documentary on, uh, on the food industry in the U.S. You probably saw this movie. It was called The Supersize Me. Uh, about a guy who eats, uh, you know, McDonald's for a month and ends up totally sick, you know. But uh, it was a, obviously a comment on the, you know, crisis of uh, obesity in the U.S. And uh, there's a clip there that shows the powerful marketing power of McDonald's, where he films these little kids. I think they're maybe eight or nine years old or something like that, and he asks them questions by showing them a picture to see if they can identify who this is and you just see the shot of the kid and uh, he shows a picture 
and it's George Washington. Who is this? Who is this? And the kids are going, hmm. Uh, most, most of them said, had no idea who that was. But some of them, uh, it's George Washington. Oh, good, it's George Washington. And what did he do? Uh, he, uh, he freed the slaves, you know, something like that. You know, they have sort of vague answers. And they show other pictures. I don't know who that is. At one point, he shows a picture. You don't see what it is, what the picture is. And all the kids, they, they don't know. I don't know. I don't know who that is. I have no idea. Several children have no idea. And one finally looks more intently at the picture. And he says, that's George W. Bush. right?" And the guy says, well, it's a, it's a good guess. It's a good guess. And he turns the picture to the viewer, and it's a picture of Jesus Christ. You know. <laughs> it's, our Lord, it's our Lord Jesus Christ. You know. You're going, what? And, uh, of course, these are the children of our future generation. Now, of course, they're just kids. What do you expect? I mean, you know, there's a difference between George Bush and our Lord Jesus Christ. But uh, naturally, if you were to show these pictures to adults, they would know. They would know, oh, that's, the, that's Jesus Christ. They wouldn't say George Bush. But, but clearly, you know, the images that suggest that they have many men, women, have no relationship to Jesus. In other words, they don't know him intimately. The, you know, and, and the Lord, our Father said, we need a handful of men and women who know him, mm-hmm. who don't make that confusion. Now, our Father wrote that point, the point about this world crisis of saints. It's a world crisis and it's a crisis of saints. He wrote that in Burgos and he arrived as you know in Burgos right after the Civil War so I'm saying 1938 and he lived in that apartment and I remember going to Burgos and I saw the actual apartment which just then had been uh, bought by some developer and they were actually changing the facade so I was like, like one of the last to see the actual facade as our father saw it. And now I have no idea what it looks like, but uh, but he wrote that in Burgos. Civil War had just finished, and of course, Spain had been completely destroyed by the Civil War, and uh, there was such a assault against the faith at that time. And for our father at that time, after surviving the Civil War, he was staying there in Burgos, and you could say he was reflecting more. His mission was becoming clearer and clearer. He had a small group of our brothers with him. And, I mean, this was in the context of Catholic Spain that had known this brutal assault against the faith. And now he's thinking, okay, we've just had this terrible war now. We need now a handful of men to respond to this world crisis that in some way was still ongoing even after the war. I mean, there was an even greater crisis that was coming with World War II. And even already, when he was in the legation of Honduras, during, you know, hauled up in that small little room, precisely with a small group of men, you know, everybody had their corner where they could sleep, and uh, they were in hiding. And there he had taken notes, he had taken a lot of notes, and we still had those notes. And, and he wrote, if every country had a group of holy fathers of families, holy doctors, holy architects, holy workers, all the world's problems would be solved. And you know, he's thinking in terms of a small group that could, like what idealism he had, right? 
Or in another note, it said, a pinch of salt is enough to season a meal for many. To impart new savor to the world, relatively few people will be necessary. But these few, by obeying God's will, have, a, have to truly be salt that cures and seasons. If we carry out our apostolate, then the face of the world will change. And the disorder and wretchedness we see in the world will be replaced with a Christian peace and happiness. Then peace will spread throughout the world. You know, this wretchedness that he speaks about, this disorder, I mean, he's clearly speaking during a time of war. Now, now the, the, the wretchedness and the disorder has been wrapped up to a new level. And we want peace to be in the world. We want peace in men's and women's hearts, the peace of Christ. We don't want the peace of a lulled conscience or of some kind of material comfort. So how are we going to be that handful of men, that handful of women that our fathers spoke about, that handful of well-trained, special ops men and women that are sent on this mission. How are we going to do this? Well, we really have to help him to reign with our apostolate. It has to ratchet up our sense of apostolate, that he needs you and me. He wants us to be docile subjects because he reigns. So if he reigns, then we have to be docile as Pope Francis would say, he wants us to go and stir things up. Pope Francis often used this expression, you know, that hacer lío, he would say in Spanish. Agan, he would speak to the, the, this group of young people. Agan lío. Pero un lío que nazca de conocer a Jesús. Go out and make a mess. Or agan lío, how do you translate that? Go, go and stir things up, make a mess. But a mess that is born of true knowledge of Jesus Christ. And it seems that, you know, when he was speaking about this to the group, he mentioned to the crowd that the other day a, a priest spoke to him in a tone, uh, you know, a jocular tone, a, a joking tone. He said to him, to the Pope, Holy Father, if you keep. Uh, counseling young people to make a mess, to stir things up, continue, I would say, continue. But after the mess, after that mess happens, well, those, those messes that the, the young people have made, we have to clean things up. Los tenemos que arreglar a nosotros, he said. But, Agalio, very good. But, Holy Father, help us to fix things up, to put order in that mess that they make. Mm -hmm. The two things, okay? The two things. And actually, after that, the Holy Father would say, Agalio, make a mess, but, you know, in a, but organize it well. He said, the Holy Father said, in a beautiful passage, I think, uh, you know, 
talking about hagan lío, make a mess. Uh, un lío que nos dé un corazón libre. A mess that gives us a free heart. A mess that gives us solidarity. A mess that gives us hope. A mess that is born of having known Jesus. And to know that that God that we knew gives us our fortitude. This must be the kind of mess that they make. Ese es, debe ser el lío que hagan. So we have to make the mess, but we have to make it orderly, an orderly mess. We all have apostolic jobs, apostolic uh, tasks, we all have maybe a group that we're working on, ladies, girls, catechism, visits to hospitals, to seniors, girls club, same refuel work, inviting girls to meditations, calling them, emailing them. We need more of that. That's the, that's the orderly part. Sometimes we've had recourse to Zoom, Yesterday I gave a meditation at uh, Kinter and there, there was the computer there, like, like one of the assistants, you know. Uh, and there were girls there, but there, were also, there was also a laptop watching me. And that's part of the order that we have to establish in our apostolate. And in particular, that apostolate, we could say, of making Christ reign, is expressed in imitating the Lord in serving others. Mm -hmm. Developing this deep sense of wanting to serve others. That is also our apostolic task. Mm -hmm. Remember how when our Lord called the apostles together, and he said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, he said, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You know, to lord it over someone, he says, you know, is to make them your subjects to make them obey you, to lord it over, like you, you must do this, on pain of prison, of pain of penalty. No matter, no matter what, you must do as I say. That is the authority of the Gentiles, the secular kings, the mandates, as we say, the forcing people to act in a certain way, making them cower into a corner, and afraid to speak. But we, in a unique way, have to ask the Holy Spirit to help us exhort their freedom so that Christ truly reigns freely in them, or that they accept his reign in a, in a free way. We want Christ to reign over our hearts and minds and their hearts and minds. And he cannot reign there because somehow he has been forced there or they've been somehow terrorized to believe that they have to uh, accept him in some way in their heart that doesn't include their own 
conscience or their freedom. Maybe there was a, there was a, you know, a generation or a period in time where people, you know, saw the Christian faith so well established in the culture that they just thought, well, I'll do like everybody else. And there was not that element of freedom to incorporate the Lord in their, in, in their own way of living. As soon as that was not, so to speak, uh, forced or emphasized, they, it just fell apart. You know, the Lord has to reign freely in us, in our minds, and we have to encourage that in others. You'll remember how the mother of John and James, the sons of Zebedee, imagined that they too would have power. She imagined the Messiah as somebody, well, that would be like a political king. Indeed, many Jews today think that, yes, the Messiah will come, but he will be like a king. He will be a true president. Like, he will really be an amazing president. And we can vote for him. And this is what the, the mother of the sons of Zebedee thought, that they would be seated next to him on this imperial throne, on this messianic throne. They would be his ministers. They would have a special place in the Senate, in the Congress. They would have unique authority. That's what she imagined the Messiah to be. But the Lord helps her and helps James and John to see that that's not what power means. He wants us to have a new kind of power, a unique kind of power. It's a power that nobody seems to be aware of. Only those who are truly close to him, who imitate him through the service, through this spirit of service. Are you ready to drink that chalice? The chalice that our Lord drank, yes, it's the chalice of the cross, the chalice of his passion, that is the chalice of his suffering. But it's also, beyond that, it's, I mean, not beyond that, but part of that is this, the chalice of service the chalice of gift of serving the others. The chalice is also in the way he washed the feet of the apostles. He said in the famous passage there in John 13, Now that I, your Lord and teacher, like your Lord, your King, your Master, I have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example so you do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. We are servants. We are messengers of that great king. And we must want to find more and more ways in which we can serve you, Lord. Without seeing service as a form of uh, perfectionism, doing everything so perfectly that there's not a single error, doing things beautifully according to some established protocol, perfectly, just right, as though that would be the service that we're called to. Again, we come back to this image of soldiers, this special ops group that are going into battle Maybe they haven't fought the battle itself, but they're going into a rescue mission. Maybe they, their mission is to go into free prisoners in hostile territory. They come in with their guns and their, 
you know, night vision goggles, stealth, in secret, you know, they have the hand signals, you know, that means go, whatever it means, go right, go left, or they go like this, and it means turn around when I say or something, I don't know. And uh, they can get into the cell where the guy is kept, where the enemy is holding their comrade, holding them hostage, and they go in their stealth and they get the guy out, and they maybe will get shot in the leg or something on the way out. There's barbed wire. They take shelter. They're on a mission. And they're getting their man out no matter what. They cannot abort that mission. What is the real enemy for us when we are serving? What is the real enemy? The enemy is not that we haven't done the thing to absolute stunning perfection. That's not the enemy. Perhaps the enemy is the whirlwind of complaints that rises from within us. I need rest, I need my time, I have no time for myself. Maybe the enemy is lack of joy in serving, the temptation to compare ourselves to how much she's doing and how much that one is doing. Or just a lack of stealth operative commandos ready to give their lives to rescue others. You know, our, our spirit of service is essentially recognizable. It has a recognizable DNA. And that is that it is hidden. It is hidden. Eh? You know, when you find DNA at a crime scene and they match it up to somebody else who is a suspect and they find the DNA on the person's neck, that person has been strangled, well, that guy is guilty if his DNA is there. And for us, the DNA of our life, it's one of the marks of our spirit, is that we are ready to go to serve and disappear, serve and disappear. And we ask the Lord now, you know, how that can really happen in my life. We don't want to draw attention to ourselves. You know, you'll remember a few years ago, there was that famous uh, airplane accident. They called it the Miracle on the Hudson in 2009 when a U.S. Airways flight crashed into the Hudson River shortly after takeoff from New York's LaGuardia Airport, one of the, apparently one of the worst airports in the world. And it was carrying 155 passengers. And everybody was absolutely amazed by the unquestioned expertise of the pilot, this guy Sully Sullenberger, played by Tom Hanks, right there. They made a great movie about it, who rightly became a, a national hero. It was like one of his last flights or something, and you know there was no time to get to a, another airport, so he just landed in the Hudson and he saved. Everybody was saved. Nobody died. And uh, yet, nobody remembers the co-pilot. His name was Jeffrey Skiles. Nobody remembers the name of the, the crew that handled this rather abrupt and unusual landing and evacuation. They were responsible for getting all those people out. And they went last. Nobody remembers the names of the people in the Coast Guard, the vessels, the tour boats, the commuter ferries. But nobody thinks of the passengers 
it seems that in that evacuation there was no sign of egotism, of seeking to save oneself. Very often when these things happen, it's, it's because people are just like freaked out and they just want to save themselves. That leads to, to more disaster. But in that miracle, the miracle on Hudson was not just Sullenberg's uh, expertise in landing. There was a, a deeper miracle there that was, the, they say, the elevation of the human spirit at work in the service of others. I mean, a, a potential catastrophe, which would have included loss of human life, was averted by the actions of people helping each other at the risk of their own welfare, at their own safety. And uh, now, more and more, you know, signs of that heroism are coming out, but still, nobody remembers the teamwork that was really going on there. They were evacuating the weaker people, the injured people, there was a person in a wheelchair, there was an infant, an elderly woman, you know. And, what, you know, one person was just soaked and shivering and after having been in the river, and uh, she turned her attention to a fellow passenger who had actually suffered a deep gash in her leg and was bleeding he heavily and could have you know, been bleeding from an artery. And uh, she, she helped her get out and she kind of saved her there too, even though she had a gashed leg. So we want the Lord to reign through that, you know, that Christ reigned somehow. And, and that was a kind of a miracle. And we, we want this to happen in the way we work for the good of the others. Do I shiver for the others? Hmm? Or is everything just always pretty clear and stable for me and good? And, uh, and I have all my, my stuff in, in place. Well, let us ask for that, uh, that great uh, ideal, right, uh, of, of really letting the Lord reign, even if I may have to hide and disappear. That's how he will really reign. That's how we will be that handful of men and women that the Lord needs in this crisis of saints. I thank you, my God, for the good resolutions, affections, and inspirations you've communicated to me in this meditation. I ask your help to put them into effect. My Immaculate Mother, Saint Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me. Mm -hmm.